Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Give the miners. Sure. They're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. So we've talked about classical dragons, St. George, smog, uh, and I'm very excited that we get to introduce our very special guest today. May Gwynn holds a bachelor's degree in theater and psychology and is a retired registered nurse. These days, May runs a small bakery specializing in French pastries, which she has agreed to send us. She hasn't agreed to that, but I'm working on it. <laughs> She's a longtime Anne McCaffrey fan since being introduced to the Dragons of Pern series in the late 80s. And she's just a really awesome person who I'm very glad agreed to join us today. So hello, May. Aw, thanks. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you will not be paid, just FYI. <laughs> but yet I need to send pastries. This seems a little backwards. <laughs> it does. We're asking a lot of her, Jen, mm -hmm. with like no return here. You get to talk about dragons. Exactly. I get to talk about dragons. I'm so excited. <laughs> So, Charlotte, uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit more about what we're talking about with May today? There is a series. This is an entire series that she uh, and May will elaborate on this, but the author considers this series a sci-fi versus a fantasy, even though it has dragons. We will focus mainly on the first book. Is the first book called Dragonflight? Am I making that up? It is, Dragonflight. It is, right, yeah. And she published it in 1968. The author, who Jen already mentioned, Anne McCaffrey, who was living in Ireland at this time already, right, May? That she was born an American and moved to Ireland. I believe that is correct, yes. So I'm just going to give you like a two-sentence summary of the first book, and it's bare minimum. And May is going to elaborate again how complex <laughs> the series is, which is fantastic for the time. Especially after the reluctant dragon, right? Because that's our only other source <laughs> at this point that has a female. Right. Yeah. Right. If you think of like the evil devil dragon and then we get this like cartoon, like bubbly, friendly <laughs> dragon companion, you're like, okay, but yeah, we can go a little bit more in depth with the benevolent dragon here. And that's yes. what we're going to do with Anne McCaffrey. Where's my summary? <laughs> so the first novel, Dragonflight, takes place during the Ninth Pass an era in which Thread has been mythologized by the medieval societies of Pern. The destructive entity, after all, only cycles their planet every 250 years. So the last efforts of dragon rider Flar, however, led him to Lessa, a young woman who telepathically bonds to the newly hatched dragon Ramoth. Together, dragon and dragon rider train to battle the soon-to-arrive Thread, knowing that their current forces may not be enough to save the planet. Lessa and Ramoth instead must use combined abilities of teleportation, telepathy, and even time travel to find a solution. That's impressive for a, you know, description of this massive series. 
She's a master summarizer. This is what she does. Well, when you have 23 novels and in um, chronological time within the novels, it covers over uh, 2,500 years. That's a lot of stuff. A lot? It's a lot of stuff. So you did good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the world that we come to with Anne McCaffrey's very first book, Dragonflight, there's a lot that we don't know about the Pern world and the dragons if you only read that book. So some of what I'll have to talk about as we go through this um, dialogue is stuff that does come out in the future novels, the novels that occur after Dragonflight. That makes sense. So let's let's break into it. First, we want to ask about the logistics of the dragons of Pern, what their origin story is, and the function and the overall plot of order and chaos. The, and the origin, you want to know the origin of the dragons. And so where we're at in the Ninth Pass in the Dragonflight world, the dragons have now evolved to the greatest that they will become. They're their largest size, their intellect has evolved to its highest function, and even in the Ninth Pass world, although not in Dragonflight, they even discover a ability for telekinesis, which uh, really wasn't a known thing prior. The dragons evolved, though, in the very first, what they call like after landing. So after humans colonized the planet of Pern, and they first realized that their entire life was in danger from this space alien life form called Thread. There was a geneticist by the name of Kitty Ping, a female geneticist, and she took some creatures that were indigenous to Pern that had survived in this environment where Thread had already been falling. And these fire lizards had evolved a ways of avoiding and surviving Thread. They did that by teleportation. They are later known to have uh, telepathy with each other. And so Kitty Ping, the character who is not in Dragonflight, just to be clear, um, that was 2,500 years prior, she took the fire lizards and did some uh, genetic alterations and created them to grow into dragons, to be the size where humans could ride them and fight this thread by the use of fire. Thread dies by cold fire, and the dragons could breathe fire. So uh, when they first started out, they were about the size of a horse, and every single generation following, they grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and they have reached their you know, full growth capacity by the time we get to them in the Dragonflight novel. It's very interesting because we, I mean, we'll talk more about this later, but we, we see something similar in... Um, how to Train Your Dragon, where there are these small fire-breathing dragons versus the, like, monster-sized one. So I, I wonder if that's another thread um, that goes through the dragon world. It's just a side thought. I, I do find it interesting that these dragons don't naturally breathe fire. They can't just, you know, belch fire as some mythological dragons had the ability. The dragons of Pern have to chew a stone that they call firestone within the series. And it's a phosphine bearing rock that's natural to Pern. And the fire lizards had basically had that ability. They would chew the rock and belch little tiny spouts of fire. And so the, the dragons have to do that as well. They cannot produce fire without that stone. And so it takes really the pairing of the rider and the dragon because the rider has to feed the dragon 
this firestone mm -hmm. while they're fighting the thread so that the dragon can produce the flame to kill the thread to save the planet. So that's where like the sci-fi part comes in, right? And this is why Anne McCaffrey sort of, she, she claims that it's, rightly so, that it's more sci-fi than it is fantasy for that reason. Because, you know, genetic manipulation of a, of a reptilian species already is fascinating because in mythology of the dragon, that's the psychology. It's a reptilian brain thing, and that's why they're considered evil. So when you think that you're actually genetically engineering this reptilian brain to be a sidekick and this bigger threat of humanity, I love that it's turned into an aspect of hope. And I think that's going to be a new thing for listeners in, in this chapter of our Western dragon. So I like that it's considered sci-fi. I certainly think that Anne McCaffrey changed that vision of what dragons could be like, you know, because her dragons, they're not just brainless tools. They are a tool, but they, they're not brainless. They're uh, sentient, they're sapient, they're intelligent to the level of humans. I mean, they're genetically altered. And in an interview, Anne McCaffrey was really clear. This is sci-fi. This is, these are genetically altered creatures, but, they're genetically altered to be more than what they were. And so they have the ability to reason. They have personalities. They have intelligence. They're completely sentient. I'm not convinced they could live on their own without humans, but that might be an argument for another conversation. <laughs> That's another element that I think is really fascinating. And if you're ready to talk about that, how dragons depend on the humans and humans depend on the dragons, that symbiotic, which is fantastic. It's, it's key, actually, right? So... How they were genetically altered, part of that alteration was that they would be naturally very bonded to humans. And as we get to the Ninth Pass, what happens is the gold dragons, the biggest female dragon, uh, there's two colors of females, and gold is the biggest. They're considered the queens. They're the only ones who lay eggs. They lay their eggs, and they have to, you know, be warmed until they hatch. And when the dragons hatch as hatchlings, they actually choose who they bond to. So the humans might bring in lots and lots of candidates for the dragons to choose. And some of those candidates gets mauled because they're in the way. Like, you know, I don't want you. I want that person behind you. Um, so there's a little violent issue going on there, you know, inadvertently. But the, the dragons choose their rider and they bond uh, telepathically to that rider and that rider only. Dragons can speak to other humans if they choose to, and generally they do not. They speak to each other, but they generally do not speak to other humans. It's considered a great honor for a dragon to speak to you. So this bond is so serious between the rider and the dragon, both for the human and the dragon, that should one of them die, the other will do what is called going between. Um, and that's that teleportation world where they can teleport from one place to the to the other that in-between world that is nothing. And so basically they, they suicide and dragons will go and do that if their rider dies. And riders will often do that as well because they are so telepathically linked that they just cannot survive without the other. And physically speaking, the hatchling, I mean, think of like a toddler. They cry all the time, they're hungry all the time, they're, they're whiny all the time, they're growing. Dragons grow fast and their skin needs care and itching. You know, they've the dragons in Pern don't have scales necessarily, but 
they have physical needs that the humans have to supply for them. And that's an interesting take in this, even if it's a male dragon with a male person, this maternal instinct that kicks in between the writer and the dragon. Mm -hmm. And as the dragon grows, they also become very protective of their human. And while they might not take care of their human in the exact same way, they also provide care and safety. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I know. Doesn't it just like Anne McCaffrey was amazing in her, her writing of this? Because yeah, and we don't. I feel like we don't have any equivalent now in our day. I mean, we we have maybe dogs and horses, but they're nowhere near the same intellectual level as we are. As it sounds like these dragons were engineered to be compatible in that way so it's fascinating and I, I feel like this element has been carried over into United States fantasy dragons right that idea of being bonded I wonder if she was the first to sort of birth that idea she's the first that I know of but I'm not an all-out dragon expert so <laughs> I'll leave that that research to you too I will say that the fire lizards that they were genetically altered from, they do play a part in this book. And in the Ninth Pass series, the fire lizards are kept as pets because they could still mildly telepathically link and bond with a human, but it's different. It's a different kind of bonding. It's not like life or death if the other person is gone kind of thing. And I think of the fire lizards in the same way that I keep my cats. They're loved, they're adored, but they're a pet. I mean, we and might dangerous. try to... Yes, and dangerous. They can be dangerous, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we people who have pets often assign human emotions to our pets when really it doesn't truly exist. But in the dinosaurs, those emotions do exist. They have emotions, they have personalities, they have thoughts and feelings that are equivalent to a human. I think something that I've been thinking about in terms of not only her McCaffrey putting it into sci-fi, but the contextual reasons for that. I mean, she was writing this in the 60s, right? I think that the idea of genetics and altering genetics was probably something that was still very prevalent and relevant to the times because of the wars. Do you feel like there was any sort of crossover or did you feel like there was anything that she was using or saying in any of, of that? Yeah, so one of the things that I, and I might be talking around your point, uh, but one of the things I find interesting about Anne McCaffrey is that she was one of the first really well-known female science fiction authors. I mean, like, she's the queen of science fiction, and that wasn't always accepted, you know, in the written sci-fi world. So not only is the author of this book a woman, but when you get to the later novel where you find out how the dragons are created, they were created by a woman geneticist, a female geneticist. And I do think that, you know, this is an author who was born in the 20s, um, and we all know the history of, you know, the roles of, uh, of females have played throughout the, the different, you know, decades. We get to the 60s where this, you know, there's this kind of this grand awakening for a lot of, you know, females, especially in the United States where Anne McCaffrey was from. She's a first female sci-fi author, and her geneticist is a female geneticist, which having a female that had that much ability and knowledge and accepted knowledge um, to create something as, right, an authority, right, in the genetic world. And so I think that is a very subtle way that Anne McCaffrey had a lot to do with building, you know, some positivity mm -hmm. for females, both in the 60s, but in later years. Because in the sci-fi world, she is still seen as, you know, the queen of sci-fi. 
cool. That you totally answered my question. Thank you. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. And on that point, the societal matriarchy of the dragons is a thing. Do you want to talk about how Anne McCaffrey structures the societal ways of the dragons once they're matured enough to have their own society? Right. So, yeah, it is a thing. It's an interesting thing to me, actually. And, uh, you know, sorry if I delve into a little bit of feminism kind of conversation. How dare you? I know. (laughs) We don't talk about that at all. (laughs) That's a cuss word around here. No, I just, I really find it interesting that by the time we get to this ninth past world, it's completely different than the society of humans that came to the planet of Pern. When humans came to the planet of Pern, I read it as equality. There's like total equality among the genders. But when we get to this 2,500 years of evolution, they've lost contract or contact with where they came from. They don't even know their history of humanity. They find that out in future novels, but they don't know that in Dragonflight. And so these people have developed this medieval patriarchal society, strongly patriarchal society. But the world in which the dragons live, you know, they have like the holds where the humans live, like their castles, their medieval little, you know, realms. And then they have the weirs where the dragons and their writers and the people who support and love the dragons live because it takes a community. That is a very matriarchal society. In fact, while the humans live their world strictly patriarchal, the dragons themselves are entirely matriarchal to the Mm. point that we've already talked about how bonded the humans are and how very tight that telepathic link is, a dragon will go against their rider and answer to and do what a queen dragon says. It's a very matriarchal society within the dragon population. And so the weirs, the humans who also live there with the dragons, it's a matriarchal society. In fact, the leaders of the weirs are determined based on who the, the top gold dragon is. The female who rides that dragon is called the weir woman, and she is basically the leader of the weir along with the man. It always is a man that rides the bronze dragon that bonds or mates with the gold. That's how, so the weir woman always stays the same. It's the senior dragon. And that bonding male dragon and male rider changes based on on that event. So Hmm. it's very matriarchal. And what's interesting to me in this storyline, in the Ninth Paths and Dragonflight, you have this world. It's been, you know, hundreds of years since the last thread has occurred. And many people have, out in the world of the humans, have decided they don't believe in it anymore. It's not a thing. They feel like the dragons are pointless. Taking care of the humans who have the dragons is a waste of their time and energies. And so these dragons in this book, not only are they a matriarchal society, but they also become the ones who save Pern because the female dragon, Ramoth, and her writer, Lessa, the lead protagonist in the series, the whole book is about them trying to save the planet. And so they become not only, we've had the female creator, but now they become the savior of the planet, also making them a hero. So it's interesting that play of patriarchal matriarchal that Anne McCaffrey worked into her series. There are points of it that are very cringy when you read it today. Can't, I can't gloss that over and not mention that. There's a few things I'm kind of like, eh, I see that differently now than I did when I was 20. Oh, yeah. But 
yet that duality and that contrast is um, very noted to me. And there's there's a little bit, I mean, not a lot, but it's mainly focused, but there is some variance in in sexuality as well right there is yeah and it depends on the the different types of dragons the largest dragon is the gold dragon so the queen female dragon and in the dragon world the larger you are the more status you have so your gold dragons are the largest in fact ramoth is the largest gold dragon that has it's like the opposite of the concubines in mulan that's like interesting the more status you have as a woman the daintier you must be you don't move around you're very thin like you can break so this is like the antithesis of that yeah i'm gonna go out on a limb here and i'm gonna say that ramoth was not dainty (laughs) (laughs) that's safe to say no i mean she was like 45 meters in size she was not dainty (laughs) They have wings, right? Tails, uh, that sort of thing. Is there more details about how they look? You know, like I said, I'm not an expert on all the dragons that have been created in mythology and stuff, but I think that they very much look like a Western-style dragon. They have six limbs. Their wings are considered limbs. Um, In fact, if you look at art that has been drawn on the dragons of Pern, their wings spread out and it looks like a a five-fingered hand. They definitely have six wings. They're very uh, front heavy, so the wings carry far to the back so that they're kind of balanced. Their head and body is generally described as horses. So I think in that way, they don't necessarily look like your modern day dragon. Their skin, you know, a lot of dragons you read, like you think scaly, at least I do. I think they have scales, reptilian scales kind of thing. But dragons of Pern, their skin is smooth. They have smooth hide. It's described as feeling like suede. So that's kind of interesting and different and it's talked about often that they have a, a scent that is characteristic to them like a sweet spicy scent and the more people are connected or to their dragon the, the more they can have that that scent and they have a forked tail just for the fun of saying interesting yes and i did leave out one i left out the most important characteristics of these dragons actually their most known characteristics uh are their eyes they have these multifaceted eyes yeah that whirl and change in color depending on their mood. And um, as you know a dragon, personally know their temperament and their personality, um, it's thought that you can tell you know, what their mood is, what they're thinking by looking at the color and the whirling of their, in their eyes. So really they these big giant eyes. Mm, I, I do not I do not know the genetic reason behind that, but we can make it <laughs> up. I mean, I just... It's, I mean, it's a way they can communicate, right? If they don't actually bond to a human and humans can't read them, this, this is how you would know what they're thinking, right? And you yeah. do have to read the entire series to get all of these little tidbits of information. You know, there's so much that's not in the first book. You do get a lot in the first three books that she wrote. Dragonflight was followed by Dra- Dragon Quest and then The White Dragon. Those were the, the, the trio of books that she first came out with. But it's in all of the other novels that she wrote and co-authored with her son as well. That you get all these little tiny, you know, little nuggets of wonderful information. Fantastic. Maybe just a little bit on how the time travel comes into play. Would you mind, May? So when the dragons have these, these have these special abilities. Uh, and this is kind of where people see it as something that's not necessarily sci-fi because, 
you know, the ability of teleportation, telepathy, telekinesis, that's kind of, you know, mystical, right? But the fire lizards had this ability to kind of blink away. Thread was falling and they had to get it right really quick. They evolved this ability naturally to kind of blink away, to go between this world and show up somewhere else. And that's really harnessed and is, plays a major part in the dragon life. Uh, and it's called, you know, going between. And initially it's thought that they could just go between spaces. The dragon has to have a clear image in their head on where they're going, where they will not reemerge from between. But other than that, they can just go. And it, in between, you can stay about eight seconds. It's considered incredibly cold. Riders would have to wear lots of like, you know, leathers and furs to protect themselves from the cold of that environment. And it's really a non-sensory kind of location except for that cold. But they could go from one place to another instantaneously, almost. And I don't mean just like a few feet. We're talking like on the other side of the planet. So that is amazing. In this book, part of the problem is, and it's interesting if you want to talk about Ramas' character later, she's actually the last gold dragon alive at one point in this book. I mean, she's like the last hope for the, the life of Pern and her writer Lessa. And so there's a lot of pressure on them. They have to repopulate the dragon world. There's not a lot of dragons to fight this enormous thread. And so Lessa and Ramoth especially is protected by the rest of the dragons. And the male leaders, human males around them, really dictate that Ramoth can't fly. They won't let Ramoth go between. They do everything they can to protect her. And in a moment of inattention by the other people, Lessa and Ramoth go between and mm -hmm. they wanted to fly and they tried it out and they go between except for Lessa didn't have a clear image in her head of where they were going she imagined the hold that she came from but she imagined it in her youth and she mm -hmm. went back in time and that was when they learned <laughs> that dragons could go between time so wow. um, that comes out in the story and it turns out that that is a saving grace because they don't have enough dragons to fight this new pass of thread. And they come up with an idea that they will go back in time after the last pass, after the eighth pass is over, they went back in time and they gathered, they called them the old timers. And it took so long in between to get back to that, you know, hundreds of years past that it said that Lessa was, I don't want to say comatose, but she was like lethargic and out of it for a long mm -hmm. time, took her weeks yeah. to recover. And, but they harnessed all of these old timers and their dragons and brought them forward in time. Now mm -hmm. they're people. I mean, if you can imagine going 200 plus years into the future, you're going to be completely out of time, <laughs> even in a medieval society, I'm sure. And they were, and that's where a lot of conflict in the storyline occurs. But had she not figured out that she could go back in time, and had she not gone back in time, it's possible that the world of Pern would have ceased to exist for the humans. Wow. So two females saving the planet hasn't really been done too much at this point in the 60s. This must have been an amazing read for women at the time. At least I would have been impressed by that. Just the fact that they forget. I know it's 250 years, but if your survival depends on something like keeping up these dragons and their dragon riders, and they're like, oh, it's just a myth by now. It's interesting. They're the last effort for survival. And yes. some of the dragons that came forward were, that didn't, it did help repopulate because it, it increased the dragon population. But the 
repopulation of the dragon world, it rests on Ramoth's shoulders. So no pressure there, girl. <laughs> no pressure at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I can tell you that I first read this book, Dragonflight, in 1988, 20 years after she wrote it. And I was like, my mind was blown, right? So, and I really do like to think about what the world is like when people are both writing something and they're reading something. And I was 20 years after this feminist revolution that occurred in the 60s. I was a child of the 70s. So I'm growing up in that kind of environment. By the time I get to the 80s, I'm kind of like, that's right, female power. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are some strong male characters too. I, I do want to put that out there. There's some very noble characters that occur in the Ninth Pass that are very, very worthy of reading. They just don't happen to be a part of this conversation with the dragons because the uh, most known male character is what's called a harper. And he's the storyteller of the world. Mm -hmm. And he's one that, you know, he helps kind of lead Lessa into understanding the knowledge and the history. So she makes these choices to help save the planet. So there is a duality of, of genders, both in the patriarchal, matriarchal, but also in the heroes of the story. I think Anne McCaffrey did a really good job in giving credit to all people, which reverts us back to 2,500 years in the past of equality and equity. Oh, that's cool. beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> See, she was the first to do it. I swear there's nothing, at least from Europe or from America coming out at this time, that makes the gender of the reptilian brain, which in our case is the dragon, so complex. And to tie it in with a a, a possible female writer, female leader is just going above and beyond at this point anyway, right? I mean, maybe things have been written later, but I mean, it's still pretty. I don't hear about that very often. I don't either. And there's been a couple different attempts to make this into a TV series, into movies, and it, it just hasn't ever followed through. But I, I would imagine at some point they're going to make this into a film series or a TV series because there's so much there to work with. And we don't see those stories. We don't see books. I, d I don't see books a lot that are about dragons and women. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that it would be lovely to see, like, with the ability for animation and graphics and everything that they can do today in Hollywood, there's still a part of me that's like, don't mess with the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a little fear. It's like, don't mess with the book. But hmm, I oh. wonder who would voice for Moth. I bet Kate Mulgrew would be a good voice for, for Moth. I'm just <laughs> putting that out there. <laughs> putting that out there now for Kate Mulgrew to put on her voice over here. Oh, my gosh. And, and Ramoth, she sort of reaches, if she's growing just like a human, she must reach a certain amount of wisdom and intelligence as she's, once she's grown as well. I'm probably not in this book you were mentioning. Is that, would you consider that a, a character development? Does she, is she learning alongside humans in this entire battle? Yeah, I believe that she does. The thing that I, I find a little bit troublesome in answering that sort of question is just in the book Dragonflight, I don't think you see enough character development to really speak to it more than you see what would be normal physical development she starts as a hatchling she has her you know her her needs as a hatchling as a youngling and then as a dragon and just as a human changes in their different ages so do dragons i think that in the 11 novels and that's a lot of novels 11 novels written about the ninth pass you really do in that spectrum get to see the change in her character and the growth she mm. like all gold dragons can be very bossy they're very moody 
if they are considered in clutch, if they've mated and they haven't laid their eggs yet, and after they lay their eggs, very protective of their eggs, even to their writers, very moody. But besides that, she learns the actual ability for telekinesis in an event where some of her fellow dragons are in danger by other wildlife, because there's other wildlife on the, on the planet, of course. And she actually throws one of these beasts that's attacking another dragon with her mind. And she figures out mm. that she has the ability for telekinesis. And it's said that dragons can carry as much as they think they can. There's no limit. Whatever the dragon thinks they can do, they can do. And Ramoth, as a character, thinks through this process that maybe the other dragons need to learn this ability we need to harness this ability, it would help us and what we have to do. You know, she does change in character. You read dialogue <laughs> between the writer and their dragons. Mm. And they have input. They, they dialogue back and forth, like problem solving. So she does grow in maturity the same way her writer Lessa does. Dragons are a little bit different from humans though, because that sapient aspect, somehow when you read, and Ramoth is, is like this, they have like this transcendent wisdom. They're not really smarter than humans, but they just have this way about them that they accept things for as it is. They accept people for who they are kind of thing. And you don't see a lot of violent tendencies unless their writers or chosen people are in danger or their fellow dragons. They're very much calm in temperament. As long as you don't mess with the queen's eggs, you'll be fine. <laughs> Wow. That's always a good rule. I think of like a That's, broody yeah. chicken, you know, like a broody chicken. You don't mess with their eggs. Oh, mm. I'll peck at you. <laughs> But again, that's such a brand new concept at this point. I love that in their basic nature that they're benevolent because up until this point, they've been malevolent. And I wouldn't even count those children versions because that's just like corny. Because this is <laughs> complex benevolence, right? Right. So I, I love that. And it, it almost like puts them a little bit ahead of humanity in that way. Because if they're like naturally like that until they bond with like these really complex, sometimes awful humans, that can really affect them. I'm going to be honest, I do see dragons above humans in the way that a human might hurt you. Yeah. You know, a human could have violent tendencies towards you, but the dragons, just because they're a dragon, will not have a violent tendency toward a human. There might be reasons that provoke them, but they don't have violent tendencies. They have, and they were genetically altered to be like that, so... It's definitely interesting because we we see a lot of examples, like you were saying, Charlotte, about these dragons having to be conquered by humans, you know, destroyed because they represent evil or they represent parts of ourselves that we want to get rid of. So I think it's really interesting that she just embraces that idea and embraces the dragon and is like, no, I'm going to like take it back. <laughs> like we are going to be a necessary aspect to keep them alive as opposed to like the one with uh, Sean Connery, which I can't remember. Dragon Dragonheart. Dragon Dragonheart. Like in Dragonheart, you know, it's like about a, a dude who goes around and is trying to, to basically kill the last dragon that's alive. So you get this completely opposite. They need the, the dragons. They need them to stay alive. They need them to be connected because if they don't, they die. I think that's a right. beautiful transit or beautiful step in the different direction it almost casts the dragon as the knight in this case because yeah. if you're thinking the dragons are a little bit above the humans even the dragon riders right like may said they could be terrible people but in this instance the, the dragons are the ones that are saving 
everybody. I mean, they're needed to battle Thread. Without them, I'm sure the humans couldn't actually do much, right, against Thread? You find out as you read through other books that there's been times where the humans could carry flamethrowers and fight the Thread on the ground. But that Thread, which I'm not sure if your readers actually know or if we stated this, but Thread consumes all organic life that it touches immediately. It starts burrowing in and destroying all organic life that it touches. And so it has to be killed immediately. Otherwise, you're not going to have humans or crops or livestock or the things that people need to survive in this kind of situation. It's deterred by metal, plastic, that kind of thing. But water, cold, and fire is what kills it. So people could walk around with flamethrowers and kill what's on the ground, but it would have already destroyed enormous amounts of space or people. So the dragons would take to the air and kill this thread as it's flying through the air before it touches anything organic. So they are needed, literally needed, to maintain the planet of Pern for human population. Planet of Pern existed just fine before humans. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of all kinds of animals that live on Pern that would have developed natural instincts to avoid the threat. But for humans to survive here, these dragons, they are eminent, you know, in their need. So that's a very important point in that their abilities, their bonding their ability to flight and breathe fire. And they're just pretty humble creatures too. They're just kind of like, yeah, feed me, scratch my back. (laughs) (laughs) Total flip on the story, which is absolutely amazing. So in the battle of light and dark, it's like the dragons become the light against the battle of the dark. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, and someone created that, right? And there was was the, the original humans that bonded with the dragons they had that foresight to be brave enough to like create these you know bond with these new creatures and i'm not sure that the dragons had much choice in the beginning but by the time we get to the dragon fight time frame the dragons have all the choice on who they bond with like i said they will mull push aside you know anybody that they don't want because they know somehow instinctively telepathically in their mind who they want to bond with And in some cases, it it might not be the people who are considered candidates. It might be spectators Uh in the stand. Oh, man, which is also fantastic. Right. That's how serious the dragon gets to choose their writer. So... And then we have we have that idea, right, of anybody can be the hero. There's no chosen one, which we talk about a lot in the podcast. That's a very universal aspect of a story that makes it better. (laughs) Anybody can relate to being hero when that's done in a story. So if you're sitting in the stands and you're chosen and you're poor, that just means anybody can do it. And I love that. Yeah. Because I was just thinking um, Avatar. I don't know why I was thinking of Avatar. But this idea of taming the beast, because they have to pick their creature. I can't remember. Horse? Creature? Dragon? They have something in Avatar, right? But in order to write it, they have to like wrestle it and nearly kill it. So there's the opposite, right? There's that ugliness of um, you're a beast. I'm going to dominate you. I'm going to tame you, which kind of is what we do to our horses. But in this instance, it's the it's the beast now choosing. And I say beast. They're not beasts. It's the animalistic now choosing their human companion. I love that. Right. right. Yeah. And in the, in the earlier years, uh, chron- chronologically speaking, in the time frame, it was an honor to be chosen as a candidate to stand at the hatching of the eggs to be chosen as a possible writer. By the time we get to the night pass, they're struggling to find candidates for all of the eggs. The last clutch of eggs to ever be laid, and they don't have enough candidates, and they don't have a female candidate 
and Flar, the male protagonist, human protagonist of the Dragonflight, finds Lessa and brings her, and the magic then unfolds. So, mm. okay, so we talked about the Gold Dragon. The Gold Dragon is the like mother of all dragons. She's the one that produces eggs for more dragons. And then there are classes of dragons. So we have different colors, different genders, I believe, and they have different functions. And so we don't want to get too far deep into those specifically, but it does seem like there's a lot of potential there for there to be crossover between like a female dragon with a male rider and a male rider with a male dragon and and a lot of like these cross things. Is that something that comes up a lot? Right. Okay. So in the dragon world, you have five colors of dragons and they are directly related to their gender. So gold and green dragons are the only females. Gold dragons are the biggest, greens are the smallest, and gold dragons are the only ones who lay eggs. The male dragons in descending order of size are bronze, brown, and blue. And in the Dragons of Pern world, it was very strict on whether that's by Anne McCaffrey's design or the dragon's design, the gold queens only bonded with heterosexual females. And the bronze dragons, so the biggest male, only bonded with heterosexual males. So when you have this pairing of the gold and bronze dragon, because it was almost always a bronze dragon that mated with the gold, you also had that heterosexual pairing of the leader of the weir a male and a female. When you get to the brown dragons, they were almost all heterosexual males, although occasionally there might be a bisexual male that bonds with a dragon. The blue dragon is the smallest male, and it originally, when they first came out, not in Dragonflight, but in the early chronological years of, of the Pern world, the blue dragons could be female, but they're came a time in the world of Pern humans where the female population needed to be protected. And so those writers became classically homosexual males, or, or they could be homosexual, bisexual males. The green dragons, they were originally all women, but again, the women, human women were protected. And that became then almost always a homosexual male because the function of the green dragon if you're going to talk in terms of sexuality, dragon sexuality, the golds, they mate in flight. And the golds would rise into a mating flight rarely. And when it happened, it was very serious and it produced a clutch of eggs that would repopulate the dragon population. The green dragons, however, they would have a mating flight all the time. They just, they constantly, <laughs> they, they are what they are. And <laughs> what, they, what they did for the, dra the male dragon population is they gave a sexual outlet for these male dragons who could not reach or catch the queen. The browns, the blues never mated with a gold dragon. So these male dragons had an outlet. And the thing that's kind of sometimes want to talk around in the in McCaffrey Dragons of Perm world is this, this <laughs> bonding, this mental bonding that these humans have with the dragons. When the dragons have a mating flight, the humans have a mating urge as well. And so it becomes like what human is having, it might be a mating, it might be just a fling, what human is having a sexual interaction with what human? And there was some homosexual uh, sexuality going on within humans just simply because their dragon was mating with another dragon. So it's kind of confusing in some ways, 
and it changes through the story. So the main thing that I walked away with, the leaders are always heterosexual. That doesn't change. It's it's very interesting because, I mean, you know, we get very little about the mating habits of dragons and all these other sources. So again, that's like McCaffrey uses that and, and makes that part of the culture of the humans as well as the dragons. Right. So uh, I don't mean to act like a prude by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm also, I'm, I'm asked um, sometimes, um, do you have a recommendation for a book? My teen, you know, my teenager wants to read, you know, sci-fi. And people who know me know that I like sci-fi. I never recommend this book to mm-hmm. youth because it's not my place to introduce um, sexuality occurrences to the youth. So I don't see this as a young adult uh, mm-hmm. series. I don't know what Anne McCaffrey wrote it for, but I see this as an adult sci-fi series. It's not graphic in its nature, but it is thoroughly explained in the entire course of the series about the sexuality both between the humans and their telepathic connection to their dragons and how that intermingles because this could be another conversation for another pod there is really not a lot of consent at that point for the human because they're bonded and they don't have a choice both in it happening or in who the partner is going to be so that's that's that part where i said some of this makes me cringe really hard but it doesn't turn me off the series because writers usually know going in what they're getting in for the candidates not the not the writers but the writers (laughs) (laughs) but you know i feel like the topic of sexuality whether it be you know heterosexuality versus homosexuality or consent versus non-consent that's a whole topic in the dragons of pern series that's dragon related but it's also just socially related and, and again, I mean, I think for me, this looking at the contextual, what was going on in the world while she was writing this series is really interesting because having a female geneticist who is respected is weird for that time. Having, you know, a homosexual relationship, even if it's kind of viewed, it's it seems like it's viewed pretty neutrally. That's also not common for that time. So it's interesting what she does do. And of course, the rest is like, well, yeah, different time, different, different place. I mean, consent should always be consent, but that wasn't in the culture at that time. Well, this is and this is the genre to mention those things. I, I don't think it would have read the same if it was a young adult novel at the time, because it's taking chances and saying these things about sexuality, even if it's in terms of dragon psychology versus human psychology. It's a great platform to experiment with that right and and i mean i gotta give all props to ann mccaffrey i mean she not only was making her way in a genre where women were not really known but the topic that this this kind of sexuality topic even as blandly and bluntly as she writes about it she's not making any opinion in this it just it is what it is but to put that out there in this the late 60s that also blows my mind because I think she was ahead of her time in that way. Charlotte and I talk a lot on the podcast as well about intent, like a writer's intent and what they're trying to do in a story versus just like having a decent story. Uh, And it seems like even if she did do some of this consciously, a lot of it seems natural to the story, to the world, and we can read into those more after, which I think is a really effective way for us to take a look at that time and and see what a writer is thinking about. 
So I, I like that personally because I think if she had tried more of that on purpose, it might have come across weird. <laughs> My final question to you is specifically about the dragons of Pern and the dragons themselves. Is there one particular aspect of them that you find the most interesting or original or that you liked the most uh, that you maybe haven't seen in other dragons? I can't name all the dragons in the Dragons of Pern world, but, you know, there are many sources out there for your, your listeners to go and just like, you know, Dragons of Pern Wiki, I think, uh, has a list of all the dragons. Lots and lots of dragons, and they all have unique personalities. I think, uh, okay, so I'm going to out myself. I am one of those crazy cat ladies. I yeah. have lots of cats in my lifetime. I've had lots of pets. I prefer cats because they're individuals. And yes, I do assign them human emotion. It's okay to be the crazy cat lady as long as you don't smell like one. <laughs> and I, I love my cats. They're my pets. And to me, the sun's a little bit silly. But to me, these dragons are like the pets we actually want. They interact. They're equal because the dragons are the equal, in, in my opinion, better in many cases than the humans. You can talk to them. You know, the writers can have a dialogue with them. And that I love that aspect of the dragon. I do like the fact that Anne McCaffrey took something that in stories and mythology were taught to be afraid of and made it something completely opposite. Other than recent cartoons, I really don't know of a lot of dragons that are like that. I know that there's dragons that are supposedly to bring luck and fortune in other cultures, but in my Western culture, dragons are like Char said, they're evil, they're violent, they will kill you, avoid them at all costs. And I just want a great big dragon that's the size of my house that I can snuggle. <laughs> yeah. So I'm and not actually sure my cats would be okay with that, but you know. <laughs> cats are tough. You'd be surprised. Yeah, I have a theory that the collective unconscious of the feminine has much more to say about dragons than males ever did, even in mythology. Which makes sense. I mean, you know, you demonize the, the feminine because that's what we don't want, apparently. I mean, I want it, but I guess other people don't. Well, Anne McCaffrey <laughs> took that and turned it on its head. May, also, thank you very much for being here You're and wonderful. talking with us. Yes, I'm pretty sure that <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Shar and I are really want to read the story ourselves, and I'm sure other people want to read it after hearing about some of these details. I don't know if I can read eleven novels like in my lifetime, but uh, um, excuse me, twenty three. There's twenty three novels. Twenty three. That's <laughs> <Not> like eleven. <laughs> okay, so I, can, I just want to tell you though, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to read these novels, you should read the first three that she wrote: Dragonflight, Dragon Quest, The White Dragon. And then if I were going to recommend, go back to the very first novel, not written, but chronologically in the series, and then read the entire story chronologically, because it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, you're just words, a, a long-term yeah. fan. That's all I can really claim, so. <laughs> nah, man, you're the expert. I would claim you to be an expert. <laughs> if you could read all the novels, that's impressive. That is impressive. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yay! Cool. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at BiteThePen, or if you'd like to email us, you can reach us at BiteThePen at gmail.com. If you liked what you heard, please tell your friends. We appreciate everyone who's listening and supporting us. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Thank you.